As many of you know, October 31st is always uh, the Reformed Church's celebration of uh, the Reformation. Uh, It was back in 1517 on October 31st that Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses uh, to the uh, door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And there sparked a reformation that conquered Europe and uh, has come to us even today. And so as a reformed church, we are very thankful for the work that the Lord accomplished through his servants then. And we certainly celebrate them. And so it's somewhat fitting uh, that this Sunday, this Lord's Day, we come to the conclusion of our series through the letter to the Galatians. And I say it's fitting because Martin Luther had said this about Galatians. He had said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock, it is my Catherine. Catherine was the name of his wife. Uh, I guess his wife was okay with him saying that. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, this was a, a letter very much loved by Martin Luther, um, specifically as it holds forth for us uh, the truth of the gospel against all error and all lies and all those who would seek to distort uh, the gospel of free salvation in Jesus Christ and that would strip the cross of its power. And so it's again fitting that on this uh, Reformation uh, weekend, uh, this Lord's Day, that we come to the conclusion of our own study of this great letter, the letter to the Galatians. Before we read from Galatians, though, I want to read from Isaiah chapter 54. And so I'd ask you to turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah 54, if you're using one of the Bibles here, it should be on page 614. The reason I want to read from Isaiah 54 to begin is that the Apostle Paul, earlier in Galatians, in chapter 4, quoted uh, from verse 1 of Isaiah 54, and it's very likely that as he describes the people of God as the Israel of God, and speaks of God's mercy and peace being upon them, that he has as its background to that statement this passage in Isaiah 54. And so the Apostle Paul sees in many ways the fulfillment in part of Isaiah 54 in the church of his own day, and he applies it to his church then as well. So Isaiah 54, here we read of God's restoration of his people as he brings them back from exile and restores them to himself. I'll read the whole chapter. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and to your offspring will possess the nations and will, and will people the desolate cities. Think of the promise given to Abraham long ago. Verse four, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. We're going to turn now to Galatians chapter 6. In the New Testament, and if you're using one of the Bibles here, it's on page 975. Begin reading at verse 15 and read uh, through verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, someone had once compared the world uh, to a store in which all of the price tags were randomly arranged. And so you can imagine, right, some of the children here, you walk into your favorite toy store and that great Lego set that you want that's normally maybe $100 has a price tag on it for $10 million. Or maybe there's a little pen that you want that's maybe worth a dollar but for some reason has a price tag on it for $100. Or something that is worthless or rather is is very um, worthy and has a lot of worth to it um, is only sold for very little. And you can see when the world, when the world is compared to a store in which the price tags are rearranged, it means that our value system is all um, off kilter. It's offset. When we think about the way in which we value things and the standard by which we measure what's important and what's worth pursuing, what's worth even dying for, uh, the world as we look around apart from God's word and the light of it, we have a hard time determining what is of real and lasting value. And so when we come to God's word, we find here a a standard by which we're able to judge the worth and the value of something. Paul said this earlier regarding our own selves, right? He had said earlier in chapter 6, in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something, right? If anyone thinks that he is of value and of importance and possesses something of, of worth, when he is actually nothing, he deceives himself, right? And so there's, Paul's saying there's a reality in which we can think that we're worth something, meanwhile, we're worth nothing. And what Paul held out before us earlier and holds out against for us today is that what, be, what is to be our standard for measuring the worth and the value of something is not that which is found in this present age that is passing away, but that we are to measure all things in accordance with the creation that is to come, the new creation that Paul even speaks about now here in verse 15. Neither circumcision counts for anything, has any value to it, nor uncircumcision, but what does have value? A new creation. 
And so when Paul says in verse 16 now, as for all who walk by this rule, Paul is saying that the Christian then, as he lives his life by the Spirit and walks in this world, lives according to a different standard or rule. The word used for uh, rule here as translated is the Greek word uh, basically meaning a canon, a standard, a measuring rod, that by which we put things against to see is it of value or not. It tests things. And so Paul is saying that in the midst of this world where values are all confused and people are pursuing worthless things and giving their lives to them, meanwhile things of great value they ignore, Paul is saying that the church is to walk by the rule of the new creation, that we are to look forward to what Jesus Christ is accomplishing. It's very similar to what Jesus says, maybe in more concrete terms, where Jesus says that we're not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves break in and and take, but rather we're to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's the Christian's rule. It's our value system. And so the Apostle Paul, as he comes to a conclusion to this letter, he's saying that we are to measure all things by the standard of the new creation. Now, specifically, Paul has in mind the gospel, the truth that we believe, a gospel that is preached to us, that has no bearing upon the new creation, that does not bring us there through the cross of Christ, has no place among us, should have no hold upon our hearts or our minds. Rather, we're to measure all things according to what Jesus Christ has inaugurated by his death and resurrection. The world is passing away along with its desires, as John tells us, And therefore, we are to pursue that which is lasting. And so we are to walk according to this rule. With that in mind, there's three ways in which Paul applies uh, this rule, this rule or standard of the new creation for us that we'll briefly think about. First, he applies it to the people of God. Secondly, he applies it to what is the mark of God's people today. And then thirdly, in terms of what it means to be blessed. And so we can think about a new creation people, a new creation mark, and a new creation blessing as we walk by this rule. So first, a new creation people, a people who belong to the new creation. Paul says in the middle of verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, we won't go into all the details here in terms of why I think this should be the case. If you have questions, you can ask me afterwards. But I think a better translation of this verse would be this. Peace and mercy be upon them, that is, the Israel of God. Paul is not holding out for us two different groups of people, the them and the Israel of God, as if they're two separate people. Some have read it this way, thinking that Paul is referring to the Gentiles on the one hand, and then the Jewish people on the other hand, within the church. But in many ways, this would contradict all that Paul has been arguing for throughout this whole letter, that there are no distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Right? He said that very same thing earlier. And so when Paul says here, upon them, he, he then adds this clause to emphasize who the them is. <laughs> who they are as the Israel of God. That's a very peculiar statement. Why does the Apostle Paul refer then to them, the church, even to us today, as the Israel of God? What does that mean for us as God's people? Well, first first it means that there are no longer distinctions found between the people of God 
within themselves. Right? That distinction of Jew and Gentile has fallen away. Uh, Paul said earlier in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, he says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what this term then means, as Paul speaks of us as a single people, means that we are not to hold up certain distinctions within the people of God. To say that I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, or to say that I am free and I am not, Jew or Gentile, right? All of these distinctions that we often can raise in within the church to sort of fuel our own self-righteousness or pride and make us feel uh, unique in a sense, right? All of those distinctions fall away in Jesus Christ. That all of us here have equal standing before God. There is none here who can claim a higher ground than any other Christian and believer. It's often said that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Christ. And so this banishes from us all sense of pride, all sense of arrogance, all sense of competition, all sense of biting and devouring, a king of the hill mentality within the church, right? Paul's declaration that we are the Israel of God is, at least in his most general sense, declaring that there is a single people of God in which the distinctions of old have fallen away. And now what defines us is our faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have faith in Jesus Christ have equal standing before God. And therefore, I'm not to think of myself more highly than I ought. And instead, I am to, within that bounds of equality among the people of God, I'm then to take a position of then voluntarily and freely serving my brother and my sister. Though equal before God, I am to take it upon myself, following after Christ my master, to not be a lord over others, but to be the servant of others as well. That's to define us as the people of God among equals, and yet a desire to outdo one another in showing honor and outdo one another in serving each other in love. That's implied by Paul's term. But more than that, Paul's also reminding us that while those distinctions have fallen away, also as the Israel of God, it means that all of God's promises of old, all of the great and glorious promises given to God's people of old, Throughout the Old Testament, you can even think of the the very promises given through Isaiah, find their fulfillment in the church. And the reason is because the church is the Israel of God, as we have been gathered around Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham. Right? That's this is what kind of brings everything together for the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ is that promised son of Abraham, in whom the blessing will go to the nations. And now as the nations are coming, not to a, a, a geographical location, and not taking upon themselves the old rites of circumcision of the Old Testament, but rather as the nations are now gathering around Jesus Christ by faith alone in him, we are now constituted as the Israel of God, the people of God, a spiritual people founded in Jesus Christ. And this has great benefits for our life as the believer because it means that the Old Testament isn't old and dusty and irrelevant, but rather the Old Testament speaks to our lives today. And we see promised long ago what we are experiencing even today. That's the Apostle Paul, his argument throughout this whole letter. 
as we've been seeing, we've been drawing back into the Old Testament as he looks back to Abraham, as he looks back to Moses, as he looks back to Isaiah. He's saying that all that they looked forward to has now come in the church as we are gathered around Jesus Christ. And so many of you might be familiar uh, with dispensationalism. Right? It's this theological system that puts a divide between God's purposes for Israel and God's purposes for the church. And it claims that God has a certain purpose for the nation of Israel apart from the church. And what Paul's statement here, it says, directly um, demolishes that way of thinking, to put it kind of bluntly. That, that, but Paul being able to refer to the church as the Israel of God says that there is no separation, that if there is any future for the nation of Israel, ethnically so, that it must be found in the church as they are gathered into the people of God. There is no separation between the two any longer now that Christ has come and that the people of God are defined by faith in him. Am I a son of Abraham? Am I a daughter of Abraham? Yes, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, the spiritual family of God. And so Paul's statement here then has massive implications for how we read the Old Testament and how we think about its relevancy for our own lives. It all is pointing there, converging there, looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise in his son. It's why Paul says elsewhere that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. And so as the old, uh, as the New Testament church began, what they began doing as they thought about their own lives, they began reflecting upon the Old Testament scriptures. They began reflecting upon them, seeing how they pointed to Christ and how now in Christ we find our fulfillment in them. We see this very pointedly in the Psalms. Right? The Psalms, we, we can take them on our lips today and we sing them today because they're relevant to us. And they're relevant to us because the Psalms are first sung by Jesus who fulfills them. And in Christ, now we can sing those very same Psalms. We ourselves can, like, can take, for example, Psalm 16, though you can go through the entire Psalter for, for these, we don't have the time for that. But Psalm 16, where it says at the end, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. The Apostle Peter tells us that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. That Jesus has come into the presence of his Father, where there is fullness of joy. And so therefore, in Christ, as we have believed upon him and been bonded to him by faith, we too can say, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right. So it teaches us to read the Old Testament through Christ, and to see the fulfillment of God's promises through Christ as well as we have believed upon him. And so it truly is a remarkable thing and worth just reflecting upon that Paul, as he comes to the conclusion of this letter, speaks of the church as the Israel of God. Now one final note on that. It's also likely that Paul is referring to them as the Israel of God because in a, in a polemical sense, these false teachers, as we've talked about many times before, was, were creeping into and slithering into the churches of Galatia. And they were claiming that to, the true Israel of God required all of these marks and all of these other regulations and law-keeping. But Paul is proclaiming that the true Israel of God is founded in Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham. And so his statement here is meant to contradict and to refute the, his opponents as well. And so Paul says that upon the Israel of God is to be God's peace and his mercy. Again, as it says there in the middle of verse 16, if you look with me, 
Peace and mercy be upon them, that is, the Israel of God. Now, the question is, as we're talking about the new creation people of God's belonging to Jesus Christ, that's our identity, that's our marker of who we are. Paul says upon them is to be peace and mercy. And it's for this reason, in order for us to understand what does it mean for peace and mercy be, to be upon us and to be upon the Israel of God. And, there, and this is the reason why we read earlier from Isaiah 54, verse 10. It's the only other place in the Old Testament where these two words, peace and mercy, are found connected. And the fact that the Apostle Paul quoted from Isaiah 54 earlier makes it very likely that when Paul spoke of peace and mercy being upon the Israel of God, he had in mind what was spoken of and prophesied in uh, by Isaiah in Isaiah 54. If you notice in Isaiah 54 verse 10, we read this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, you can also translate his mercy, shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so here, mercy and peace are brought together. And Paul sees, again, what Isaiah looked forward to now being enjoyed and upon the people of God. And so then, what does it mean for peace and mercy to be upon the people of God? Well, Isaiah 54 gives us a very concrete expression of that. What does it look like? Notice what it says in verses 11 and 12 in Isaiah 54, how it pictures for us uh, peace and mercy being upon the people of God in terms of a city, in terms of a city founded on precious jewels and stones. Isaiah 54 verse 11 goes on to say, Rather, we'll just jump, uh, we'll, we'll read 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. And so, the children here can picture this. Think of a great kingdom. Or maybe some of the TV shows you watch or maybe the, some of the picture books you've read. Right? You've seen a great castle. A powerful castle with strong walls. And what the Apostle Paul is, is saying for us here is that the peace and mercy that belongs to the church is like a strong city, a strong castle, founded not upon clay and things that, that break down and, and decay, but upon, upon precious stones, stones that will not break, stones that are secure and that will last forever. The Apostle Paul is saying that that reality belongs today, to the people of God, in the midst of all of the trouble that is caused around us, in the midst of all the trouble that may come upon us, nevertheless, the peace and mercy of God rests upon the people of God like a city well-founded, like a city secure. And the reason that we are secure and the reason that we are safe is not because of our circumstances, which can often militate against us, but because of God's promise to us in Jesus Christ. Our security today, though all hell rage against the church, we are secure and safe because of Jesus Christ. And it's to him that we then look in the midst of the storms for peace. It's in the midst of all of the chaos that we look to him that we find mercy and steadfast love. 
That's the reality of the church today and something then that we live by faith in. Right? Our eyes see around us the church at war. Our eyes see around us enemies, the world, the flesh, even in ourselves, and the devil himself, attacking the church, seeking the demise of the church, and yet we stand secure in peace because we know that the gates of hell shall not prevail, that Jesus Christ has conquered, and that not even the worst attacks of the enemy, death itself, can keep us from enjoying the promises of God given to us in him. What more can the world, the flesh, the devil do than put us to death? And even that is the victory of the church. And therefore, Paul is saying that as we think about our security today, we are not to look to the world around us that might cause us to fear, but instead we're to look to God's word that has spoken a more true word that we are, though the world may not see it, but by faith we see that we, the church, are a well-founded city a city founded upon precious stones, and therefore upon us, upon the church, is the peace and the mercy of God. What a great comfort then in this life, as we face trials and we face enemies on every side, we are a well-founded city. And more than that, not just being well-founded for our own sakes, but God causes us to be a well-founded city that we might have fellowship and communion with him, that in the midst of the storm we might find peace as we look to him, and we might know him as our God. It's for this very reason that the same imagery in Isaiah 54 that the Apostle Paul is drawing from will also be drawn from by the Apostle John at the very end of the Bible. Many of us know the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. It too is a city well-founded. Pearly gates, gold streets, all of more jewels than even Isaiah looks forward sees are laid out for us in Revelation 21 and 22 as the consummate picture of our future in Jesus Christ. That is where we're headed, to a city of everlasting glory, a city that will not crumble or fall like the cities of this world. New York City is great. The many cities of this world are great, but they're not everlasting. They're not founded upon sapphire and agate and carbuncle. They don't have pearly gates and golden streets. No, these cities today will fall one day, if not in our history, at least when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom. And it's his kingdom, it's his city that is everlasting. And Paul is saying that the peace that is to be ours then is already ours in part today. And we can begin living then with that peace and that mercy upon us. And that serving even as the end will serve, right? I will be your God, you will be my people. In that city that is well-founded, God's people see the face of their God shining and God's name is written on their foreheads and his throne is in the midst of it. Paul is saying that that is to be true of us today as well. We are well-founded. We are secure in Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, pursue fellowship with Christ. Devote your life to him, serve him, And love him with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is what stands behind Paul's statement. Peace and mercy be upon them that is the Israel of God. And so we spent most of our time talking about the new creation people, the church, as those who belong to that future Isaiah looked forward to, a well-founded city, a secure future that we enjoy already in part today as God's peace and mercy is upon us.
But secondly, and these our next two points will be briefer, so that this first point had most of the meat to it. Uh, but our second point is a new creation mark. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. He says, from now on, right, in light of what he, Paul has been saying, in light of what he has, been, he has opened up for the Galatians and for us, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, right? This is a popular word Paul's been using throughout Galatians. He often refers to his opponents as troublemakers, and they're troubling them by shaking them from the sure foundation they had in the gospel, the good news that Paul preached. They had come in and began to speak against the Apostle Paul, saying that he was a second-rate apostle, that he was withholding things from men, that they might experience a full spiritual life. And Paul is saying that now that I have opened these truths for you, that the fullness of life and of spiritual life is found in Jesus Christ, and it's, the, it's the, our opponents who are detracting you from that, now let no one else cause me any trouble. Rest in the message and the gospel that I have been sent to proclaim. That's what Paul is telling us. It brings us back to the very opening of his letter. As he says, describing himself, Paul, an apostle, right? One sent with the authority of the one who sends. An apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, that is the message that I have maintained. That is the message that we must believe. And if that is the message then that we receive, let no one cause Paul any trouble. And let us not cause Paul any trouble. Let us too humbly receive his message as sent from Christ himself, that apostolic word, that we too might rest in his cross and in his resurrection, knowing that by it we are made right with God, that by it we are made into a strong city, and by it we are destined to enjoy our God forever and ever. Let us not trouble the Apostle Paul, but rest unshaken in that message. And Paul is going on to say then that what then is to be the mark of that, right? right what is to be, you know, if, you're, if you want a defining mark to look at and see with your eyes, because that's what they were all about, these false teachers, and even the, the, that temptation remains with us even today. I want to be able to touch, I want to be able to see I want proof. I want evidence. For them, it was a good showing in the flesh, the opponents it was for, for them. A good showing in the flesh, as Paul says earlier. And Paul's saying, if you want a mark, if you want something that is going to define the new people of God, to define those who are destined for everlasting life with the Lord Jesus Christ in a city well-founded, well then look not to a good showing in the flesh, but look to those who are bearing the cross. Right, Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Likely Paul is referring to the bruises, the scars, the ripped up skin, the broken and hurt knees that he experienced from all the stonings and all the shipwrecks and persecutions that he faced on behalf and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Right, Paul is saying, if you want a mark, look to the mark of the bodies of those who have been persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, who have taken Jesus' words seriously that if anyone was to follow him to glory and into the city of God, that he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. That is the mark of Paul that said not that he was destined for destruction, as the world might look at it, right? Paul, Paul, they see Paul coming into a city. 
They see a broken man. They see a weak man. And from the worldly perspective, you would say that this is a man who is not destined for anything great. This is a man on his way to destruction, despised, rejected. And yet, by faith, by looking to Jesus Christ and his cross and and, and his resurrection, we know that the Apostle Paul, in his message and in his weakness, carried with him the very power of God for salvation. And the same, too, for the church. What is to define us and mark us is not success and prosperity and and, um, the um, acceptance of the world around us, but rather what is to mark us as those who are headed to the city of God is cross-bearing. And whether that is physical persecution, or that is um, taunts, or it is being maligned, or whatever else it might be, the mark, the true mark of the people of God is that they bear the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said just a few verses early, earlier, far be it for me to boast, right, to take pride in, to glory in anything else, save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, again, is to mark us as the people of God. Paul lived that out by faith, and we are to live that out by faith as well. And we do so with joy in our hearts, right? Because we know that as we bear the cross, we will also share in Christ's crown. That as we, as we, as we follow Christ in his death, we will also follow him in new life. That the way up is truly the way down. That in humility, we, God will exalt us into great glory. That is the paradox, that is the message of the gospel that overturns and flips the world upside down. But the way to glory is not through power, it's not through amassing means to ourselves, but it is through humble dependence upon Jesus Christ, bearing our cross, enduring the shame, and doing so with the great prospect and hope that we will share in his glory And as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, we will reign with him over all creation forever and ever. That is our destiny as the people of God. And for those who bear the mark today, the mark of the new creation is the cross of Jesus Christ. No longer are we identified by the mark of circumcision, but rather we are identified by Jesus and his cross. That is who we are as the people of God. So we've seen a new, a new creation people, a new creation mark, and then lastly, a new creation blessing in verse 18. Paul ends the letter by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brother, brothers. Amen. And Paul is saying that by appealing to their spirit that his message would, would dig deep into their hearts, come to the very center of their being, define them most, um, most pointedly, that it would reach and, and grab roots into the very center of their lives. It's also possible that as Paul has contrasted uh, the, the marks of the body, that their spirits be secure. That though the body may waste away and break down, yet their spirit is secure, as we have already partaken of the new life in Jesus Christ, by faith in our spirits. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And that is ours in part today. And so again, though the body may be, may be burned and destroyed and broken, and the body does waste away, our spirits are ever secure in Jesus Christ. And it's also, as one final note, important that the Apostle Paul ends this great letter with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he had begun with it. Chapter 1, verse 3, he said to the church, Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He began with grace, and now he ends with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And so Paul is sandwiching all that he has to say in this letter by the grace of God, which is then to say, as one commentator pointed out, it then means that the grace of God, the free gift of God, the goodness of God to undeserved sinners, encompasses everything that the Apostle Paul has said in this letter. The opponents of the Apostle Paul emphasized the works of the law, but the Apostle Paul trumpeted the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I could read what this commentator had said in conclusion as a summary of this whole letter, he says this, bringing together all of the various doctrines and truths that the Apostle Paul has proclaimed to us. He says that it is by grace that God sent Christ to rescue us from this present evil age. It is by grace that God called Paul to take the good news to the Gentiles. It is by grace that we are justified through faith and not works of the law. It is by grace that we are crucified with Christ and raised to new life with him, a new life that we live by faith in him. It is by grace that we are sons and the seed of Abraham through Jesus Christ, the singular seed of Abraham. It is by grace that Christ redeems us from the curse of the law and gives us the Spirit. It is by grace that we have been freed from the elements of this world and adopted into God's family as sons with an inheritance. It is by grace that we are children of the heavenly Jerusalem, sons and daughters who have been redeemed from our exile in the great new exodus that Christ has accomplished. It is by grace that we are free to serve one another in the power of the Spirit, bearing fruit in our lives. It is by grace that we are able to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It is by grace that we are empowered to persevere in doing good so that one day we will reap an eternal harvest. It is by grace that we have experienced the new creation that will one day transform all things into a perfect and glorious reflection of Jesus Christ. And it is by grace that we experience peace and mercy through the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ, marking us off as the Israel of God. Such grace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ alone. For it's he who loved us and gave himself for us as the suffering servant. All of these benefits, all of the goodness that Paul has proclaimed to us in this letter are ours only in Jesus Christ. And it's only in Christ that we look forward to that city whose maker and builder is God. And we look forward to entering to that city one day where we will behold the face of our God. His throne will be in the midst of us and we will worship him worlds without end. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a joyful message that your word proclaims to us and that the Apostle Paul defended and upheld in the midst of a world that would seek to overturn it and to compromise it. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter. And we pray that as it has been proclaimed and heard by us, that it would take deep root in our spirits, in our hearts, in our souls, and that through hearing this word, it would be a blessing to us as it produces in us good fruit. And so, Father, may your word have been received on good soil, that your name might be exalted and glorified, that we might follow Christ wholeheartedly, taking up our crosses, and that we might also, with great joy and anticipation, look forward uh, to the day that, you, that the dwelling place of God will be with man, that you will be our God, and we will be your people forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.